0: One of the most common reasons given by those who refuse to attend church, uh, who refuse to gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day is is often this one. I don't want to be around a bunch of what Hypocrites. hypocrites, hypocrites. I'm sure you've heard that indictment before. And maybe maybe you're here this morning begrudgingly as someone who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, but because someone has continued to pester you, you're here. I want you to know, I want you to know something, friend. We're glad that you're here. And I want you to know that no one you've ever met. In fact, no one in this world is more concerned about the hypocrisy of God's people than the Lord God himself. No one is as infinitely concerned about the unholiness of God's people than the Holy One of Israel. This is what the Lord said to Israel through his prophet Amos I hate, I despise your festivals, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. No one is more concerned about the holiness and the faithful worship of the people of God than God himself. And there's no portion of the scriptures that inform and inspire true worship. than the book of Psalms, there's no part of the Bible that helps inform us and form us as worshipers of the true and living God than the book of Psalms. And so this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 81. We're we're transitioning this morning into uh, our our annual summer series in the Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm 81 this morning. The Psalms, if you've never spent a summer in the Psalms, if if you don't have a Bible reading plan and you want to know, hey, how am I going to spend my summer? Just read the book of Psalms. Read the book of Psalms. There are 150. You could read through the whole book of Psalms. One Psalm a day. Read through the whole book this summer. The Psalms are a perfect school of prayer. The Psalms are an inexhaustible fountain of truth. The Psalms are a joyful banquet of praise. And the Psalms are an overflowing fountain of revelation. Of God himself. So please open to Psalm 81. If you're not used to reading a Bible, you can find this passage in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 491 and 492. So I'm going to be talking about the, the verses, the sentence, little, the, the sentence numbers there in the Psalm. Psalm 81 is kind of like the chapter number. So uh, and also if you're not used to reading a Bible, if you don't have a Bible that you can read for yourself, take the Pew Bible as a gift from us to you. We we want you to have a copy of God's word. Now in this, in this Psalm, briefly, let me summarize what's going on before we read it. God causes people to worship. God reminds his people of what he's done for them. And then God rebukes them and calls them to hear and to heed his word afresh. That's what, that's what the, the Psalm does. That's what the Psalm says. In short, this psalm is a summons to each one of us to taste and see that the Lord is good. I mean, this is what Holy Scripture says. To the choir master, according to the geteth of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine. The sweet lyre with the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon and at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Let's pray one more time. Our gracious God and Father, open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son, who lives with you and who reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit. One God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. 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 Our outline, our expositional outline of this psalm consists of only three words. If you're a note taker, here it is. Number one, rejoice. Number two, remember. Number three, repent. Number one, rejoice. Verses one to three. Rejoice. Verses one to three. Number two, remember. Verses four to seven. Verses four to seven. Rejoice, remember, and then verses eight to 16, repent. Rejoice, remember, repent. And my prayer is that as we walk through this psalm together, the Lord will not only cause our hearts to rejoice and remember what he's done for us in Christ and cause us to repent because of his kindness, but he would prepare us to celebrate all of these things as we partake of the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of our time. Number one, rejoice. In verses one to three, you'll notice that God's people are summoned to rejoice. You'll notice the the, the, the writer of this psalm, if you look at your Bible, it says to the choir master according to the Geteth, and then here's the author of Asaph. Do you see that? If you've read your Bible, you read your Old Testament, Asaph was kind of like the worship leader for David's, in in David's lifetime. So we read in in 1 Chronicles 16, David appointed some of the Levites to be ministers before the Ark of the Lord, and they were to invoke and to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And then we're told Asaph was the chief. He was kind of the head worship leader as a Levite, During David's ministry, he was also there at the dedication, leading the worship at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Asaph wrote several psalms. He wrote 12 psalms. If you look in your Bible, Psalm 73 down to verse 83 or Psalm 83, those are kind of like his greatest hits. Okay, so we're looking at one of Asaph's greatest hits this morning. I want you to just make, make a few brief observations about these opening verses. These are very obvious, very clear. Everybody can see this. Verse, the first thing you notice is these are really loud verses. They're loud. Sing aloud. Shout for joy. Raise a song. And then the, the, the praise band comes in. Sound the tambourine. The sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the what? Trumpet. These are, this is not, this is not worshiping with a piece of paper over your mouth like this. This is loud. This is joyful. Many years ago, I was serving in a church where uh, one of the dear sisters would often bring a tambourine in her purse. And when the spirit led in if it was a hymn, she really liked all of a sudden tambourine comes out and you start hearing the tambourine in the service. It was great. She was expressing the joy of the Lord. These are second notice. These are happy verses. You notice the tone of this is joyful. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. This is a call to rejoice. These verses are supposed to put a smile on your face. Notice what it says. What is fueling all this happy praise of the Lord? Answer Simply God himself. Look, sing aloud. Notice to God, our strength to shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Friend, you may have arrived here this morning as a weary and weak, wounded Christian. And what this verse reminds you is the Lord, your God is your strength. He's your strength. He is your God. You don't have to be strong. He can be strong. He is your strength. And having God, the God of Jacob, as your strength ought to cause weak and weary sinners to rejoice with a smile on our face. Charles Spurgeon commented on this verse and said this, quote, he says, It is regretted that some of the modern singing frightens our congregation from joining lustily in the hymns. <laughs> Not even sure what that means. I, I guess people weren't singing loud enough. But then he says this: let no Christian be silent, for this God is our God. Amen. If you have this God as your God, you always have a reason to rejoice. Even when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Third observation. These verses are full of plural or corporate commands. This isn't intended to simply be an individualistic type uh, rejoicing. Verse one, it's given to the whole congregation. Verse two is given directly to the Levites. They were the the temple singers um, in the courts. Verse three is given to the priests. They were the ones appointed by God to blow the trumpet. To blow the trumpet for the feasts of Israel. Now, you know what that word, you've heard that word trumpet before. It's, it's a shofar. It's one of those ram's horns that they would use for the feast. We see that in verse three. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. So the, the whole psalm is a festive, joyful, worshipful celebration that centers around The feasts in the Old Testament scriptures, God commanded his people to feast, to have festivals on an annual basis. The calendar of Israel was literally a reminder to God's people of what he had done for them, particularly in the Exodus, and a reminder to them to worship him in spirit and in truth. In Leviticus 25, 9, we're told specifically that this trumpet call signaled the arrival of something called the Year of Jubilee. So maybe you, you've studied this before. Every 49th year after that, they would have a Year of Jubilee. And the Year of Jubilee was a time that commemorated the Exodus when God rescued his people from bondage and slavery after hundreds of years there in captivity and during the year of Jubilee, slaves were liberated, debts were forgiven, and land was restored. Now, brothers and sisters, you might be thinking, what does any of this have to do with us? All this is looking backward. Well, brothers and sisters, as the new covenant people of God, we too are called by God to rejoice. We are called to rejoice together as his people. Now, and I want you to think about this. Isn't it wonderful that God's summons to rejoice, God's call to worship, actually calls us out of our isolation to be together to praise the Lord? That's, is that an applicable word for us this morning? We are called to rejoice. It's easy over this past year to get super used to being isolated. You can be so isolated that after a while you think that that's normal. But this passage is saying that 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 we are called to worship and rejoice together. So whatever whatever fearful concerns, whatever whatever uh, challenges that get in the way of coming together to worship the Lord, this Psalm is calling us by his grace and for his glory to celebrate all that he has done for us in Christ. If we are in Christ, there is something better than Jubilee that we have in the gospel. Christ, our Passover lamb, has purchased us by his blood. There's a a friend of mine who wrote a book on corporate worship named Matt Merker. And he says this, and I want you to hear as I share this, hear all of the 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 language of worship and how it unifies us. Quote, God hears our praise because we're united to his beloved son. God created us and redeemed us for his glory. And corporate worship is a gift he first gives to us, then receives from us. He gathers us as a church for his glory. And on one day, on the Lord's day, the last day, he will gather the whole church together for the eternal assembly that forever enjoys his glory. Isn't that wonderful? When Christ comes at the shout of command, all of his people will be gathered together to worship him. And it won't be multi site It'll be one assembly with all of God's people from every tribe and nation and tongue worshiping the lamb who was slain. If you want to learn more about corporate worship, there's a book called Corporate Worship. And you can find it in the library after the service. Matt Merker, great guy, great book, Corporate Worship. Our worship unites us. And you think, well, what does this have to do with the Exodus? I want you to think about this. The Exodus was a picture Of what God was going to do through through the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize that it was a type of the salvation that God was going to bring about when he sent the Lamb of God into the world. See how is that? Listen, we, too, were enslaved. We were in bondage and we, too, were under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. And we trusted in his promise and we took shelter under the blood of a spotless lamb. And our rescuer freed us and led us out of our bondage by his spirit. And now, because of his grace and mercy, because of his faithfulness to his promises, we have God living in our midst and he has spoken his holy word to us. And he is leading us together through the wilderness of this world. And we are following him by faith, step by step on our way to the promised land, to our true country and to our everlasting home. We are a people who are worshiping our way to glory. So what's the application for us? What are we supposed to do from this? Hebrews tells us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the, the day drawing near. Number two, we're supposed to rejoice, but number two, we must Remember, verses four to seven. Look at these opening verses, these verses four to seven. You'll see right there that little word in verse four is the word for. Do you see that? So don't look at me. Look at your Bible. That little word for indicates that Asaph is giving you the reason or the foundation for the commands he gave. Those five commands that he gave in verses one to three. He gave you five commands and now he's giving you the reason or the basis for those commands why should God's people sing why should they shout for joy why should they raise a song why should they sound the tambourine and blow the trumpet answer because it's a statute for Israel it's a rule for the God of Jacob he made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt you see those three words statute rule decree You see that This tells us, brothers and sisters, that worship is not optional. It's not something you can just say, well, you know, it's not a big deal. No. Corporate worship is not optional. Corporate worship is a divine obligation. It's a statute. It's a rule. It's a decree. Now, I have to write things down. I don't know about you. I have to write things down for me to remember them. I carry around a little notebook in my pocket like this. And if I don't write stuff down, it doesn't get done. I forget it. I don't know about you. I I have to write things down. Now, God's people in the Old Testament are very forgetful, aren't they? They're very forgetful. That's why one of the most common commands the Lord gives to his people in the Torah is remember. He's constantly telling them to remember. And because he loves his people so much, he doesn't just tell them. He has Moses write down not only that they should remember, but exactly what they should remember. And here's Asaph speaking as a prophet. And he's reminding us to remember what the Lord did for his people in Egypt. Look what he says. I hear a language I had not known. And listen to what the Lord did. I relieved your shoulder of the burden Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called, and I delivered you. Isn't that wonderful? Did you ever consider just for a moment, did you ever consider that the exodus was an answer to prayer? Look at it again. In distress, you called, and I what? I delivered. Now, if you want a reason to join the prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, there you go. They called out and God answered. That's the the, the Exodus was a response of God's faithfulness to his covenant and the cries of his people. Exodus three, verses seven and eight. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry. And then he says, I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptian and to bring them out of that land to a good land, a broad land, a land of flowing milk and honey. Then look at what he says in verse seven. He's he's brought them out. Of Egypt, and then he leads them to Mount Sinai. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And then it says Selah. If you want to know what Selah means, uh, there's a lot of theories. I think it's every time David or Asaph broke a string. Verse seven, I answered you in the secret place of thunder and I tested you notice at the waters of Meribah. Do you see that Meribah, when you hear the word Meribah, you need to remember that, 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 that shows up two main times in the Torah, right before they get to Mount Sinai in Exodus 17 and then all the way after their wilderness journeys in Numbers 20. You've got Meribah and Meribah and both times in both instances, Israel fails to believe God's word. He provides for them water from the rock. And it's a sign of of how they failed to trust in God's promises and in God's provisions. Meribah is like two bookends of unbelief for Israel. Just think about that. They wandered for 40 years and God gave them honey bread from heaven And water, sweet water from the rock. We rejoice when we remember what God has done for us. And we worship when we remember what he's done for us. Listen, the reason, brothers and sisters, listen, the reason we are not growing individually or corporately in the depth of our worship is that we have often forgotten what God has done for us in Christ. When you recall what the Lord has done for you, that's a means that he uses to fuel fresh worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And what? Forget not all his benefits. We fail to bless the Lord because we forget his benefits. Now, when you look at this, you think, how in the world could they forget? I mean, think about everything God did for Israel. He heard their cry, He sent Moses, He rescued them. All of the signs and wonders He did in Israel, He led them out of Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians, they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. He led them to Sinai. And yet the psalmist is saying, you need to remember this stuff. And you ask yourself, well, wait a second. What did Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 10? Before we quickly judge Israel for being, for being forgetful, what did God say to Israel? What did God say to us in 1 Corinthians? Paul writes this concerning these things. Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. My sisters, we need to be reminded of these things because we are a forgetful people. We are a people who have forgotten what the Lord has done for us. That's why when we celebrate the supper at the end of the service, what was the Lord Jesus's call to us the night he was betrayed? Remember what he said? He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in what? Remembrance. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. We, We need to be reminded. That's why corporate worship is so important. We can't go seven days without forgetting what the Lord's done for us. We need to be reminded every week of his grace and his mercy. In our distress... We cried out to the Lord and the Lord Jesus came down and delivered us. He relieved our burden of sin by carrying it on himself. He relieved our burden by carrying it on his shoulders all the way to a bloody cross outside Jerusalem. He tasted the bitter cup of God's wrath and he drank it down every last drop. And for all who turn and trust in him, he grants us his perfect righteousness and we can worship him with a clean conscience before the Lord by his spirit. Brothers and sisters, we're called to remember. We're called to rejoice. But thirdly and finally and briefly, we're called to repent. We're called to repent. Notice in verses eight to 16. God's people are commanded or required to repent and repent just means to change. God grants us repentance. It's a gift. He calls us to trust in his word and the the flip side of trusting in his word and hearing his word and believing it is that we change. I was at a, a stoplight one time with the boys. We were in a car and. There was a truck in front of us, a yellow truck that did a U-turn at the light. And so it was going this way and it turned and went that way. And Hudson, I think, yelled out, Daddy, look, that trunk is repenting. It was going this way and then it turned on this. Way. And, that's what, and that's what Israel is called to hear. They've been rescued by this God and yet they still are worshiping idols. And so the psalmist looks back briefly at Israel and then brings it up to the present. So look again. What is, what is, what's the main thing that God's people have to repent of doing or not doing? Namely, they're not listening to God's word. They're not hearing and heeding God's word. They're listening to other voices. Look at verse 8. There's the command. Verse 8, Hear. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. This sounds just like the Ten Commandments, right? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. Our worship problem is a remembering problem and our remembering problem is a listening problem. Let me go to that again. Our worship problem is a remembering problem and our remembering problem stems from a listening problem. We are listening. I don't know how many of you parents catechize your children by catechize. I mean, you're teaching them Christian doctrine. If we don't catechize each other in the church, do you realize we only get time together like an hour and a half, one time a week, you are being catechized constantly by the world. You're being catechized all the time. And so You will be shaped by the voices that you listen to. And what this passage is teaching us is that even God's people can fail to listen, to hear and to heed God's word. Our worship problem ultimately is a listening problem. And here's the scariest verse in the whole psalm. So if you're if you're asleep, wake up. Look at verse 12. So. How does God respond? So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. If you won't listen to God, there will come a point where He does this. He gives you what you want. Some of you, some of you are not worshiping God because there's this one thing you want. And you're almost thinking of it like a barter. I'll worship you if you give me this. But you see, God doesn't, he doesn't make deals. God offers you himself. And that's it. But that's enough. And the worst thing he could do is give you what you want. The King James puts it like this. So I gave them up unto their own hearts lust." And they walked in their own counsels. They're not listening to the counsel of the Lord, so they walk in their own counsels. But even here, brothers and sisters, do you hear the Lord's loving, searching desire for his people to listen? Oh, look at that. Oh, my people, my people did not listen to my voice. They would not submit to me. Asaph closes the psalm not by looking simply at the past. He brings it up to the present. Look at verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That is, listen to me in the present. That Israel would walk in my ways and I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him. And their fate would last forever. And then look at verse 16. How is this repentance going to come about, brothers and sisters? It's not by willpower. It's not by trying harder. It's by the kindness of God in Christ. Look what he says in verse 16. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Now, isn't that amazing? All of this stubbornness, all of this disobedience, all of this rebellion, all of this failure, failure to hear. And how, how, does, how does the psalm end? He says, in spite of all of that, I will feed you with the finest of wheat. I would feed you with honey from the rock that satisfies That's the kind of God we serve. That's called grace, brothers and sisters. That's called grace. He is a God who is gracious to sinners. He loves sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our failures, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our refusals, in spite of our wanderings, the Lord God promises even today to satisfy his people with his grace. He promises to feed us with the sweet and satisfying grace, listen, of the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. And I'm getting that from verse 16. Now, when I was in seminary, an Old Testament professor said we're supposed to do exegesis, not extra Jesus. But I think I'm doing exegesis here. And I want to show you before we go to the table. Look at verse verse 16. This is an echo of Deuteronomy 32. This is a, a verbatim quote. Deuteronomy 32. When it says that God nourished Israel with honey out of the rock. In the Old Testament scripture, sometimes the water from the rock and sometimes the manna from heaven were mingled together to refer to the same thing. The manna from heaven, which was tasted like honey, the honey bread from heaven and the water from the rock is referred to as honey from the rock. And Asaph says, God promises to satisfy his people with this honey from the rock Psalm 81 is summoning his people to celebrate at the Lord's feast and invites them to be satisfied with honey from the rock. Now, Jesus Christ came into the world not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He's the spotless lamb of God. He's the Passover lamb. He came into the world to bring about a new exodus for his people. Jesus himself is the bread of life, the true manna of heaven, the heavenly manna who has come down to feed his people and to give life to the world. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And brothers and sisters, the Bible itself tells us Who the rock was. Listen. Listen to the Apostle Paul. What does he tell us in 1 Corinthians 10? He's reading these passages. 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And listen, they all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. The rock in the wilderness didn't provide water until it was smitten. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who was smitten by God and afflicted and pierced for our transgressions, when he was on the cross, he was Pierced in his side and the water flowed. And John tells us that a fountain was opened. A fountain of cleansing was opened in Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ stands today in the midst of us. And he invites any sinner who would come to him. Any sinner who is thirsting to come and he will give you the water of life. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink for whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And listen, on the last day, Jesus is going to fulfill the Jubilee, right? A great trumpet is going to sound and he's going to come and he's going to raise the dead and all of God's people who have longed for his appearing will worship before him in spirit and in truth. And we shall no longer hunger. We shall no longer thirst anymore. Because the Lamb of God will be in the midst of the throne. And he will be our shepherd. And he will guide us to springs of living water. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you and praise you for your matchless grace. We thank you for the invitation to come. To trust, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ in the empty hands of faith. Father, we pray as we prepare to take the supper now that you would help us to worship Christ, to remember Christ and to proclaim his death until he comes. We ask this in Jesus, our great savior say. Amen.